0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Ontario's online booking system for the COVID-19 vaccine is now officially open. What does it mean for Hamiltonians? Well, we'll talk about it. Canada unveiled its first ever active transportation fund that will invest millions in building and upgrading bike paths, pedestrian walkways, and nature trails. Dr. Rakim Mitra from Urban Planning at Ryerson University joins us to talk about that. And Ontario's finance minister says the province will deliver its 21-22 budget on March the 24th. What are they proposing? coming up the bill kelly podcast starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml on everybody's minds right now it's vaccines vaccines and more vaccines the programs of course started to roll out just a little while ago uh today actually so just a little while ago provincial booking system is uh, is now up and running we'll talk about that in just a couple of seconds but there are still concerns about supply chain the public health agency of canada is expecting a smaller than normal shipment of covid 19 vaccines this week fewer than 445,000 doses of pfizer shots are scheduled for delivery over the next seven days or so but reporter larry paris tells us that uh, this will be the last week in which canada receives less than the one million doses over a seven-day period here's her report
1: Starting next week, Pfizer and BioNTech are scheduled to begin delivering more than a million weekly doses of their shot, and other pharmaceutical companies are expected to make their own promised deliveries in the next few weeks. Those include the first shots from Johnson and Johnson as well as more doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which are both expected to start rolling in in the next month. Inoculations from Moderna are also due to keep arriving in Canada every 2 weeks. Laurie Paris, The Canadian
0: Press. So that sounds encouraging. Uh, mind you, we've had promises like that in the past that haven't really come to fruition. So uh, let's uh, get the uh, outlook from on the ground here. Paul Johnson is the Director of Emergency Center for Hamilton, uh, coordinating all of this and uh, the whole COVID protocol over the last year or so. Uh, Paul, busy guy, and thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Uh, how would you assess how it's gone so far, Paul? I'm th- I'll talk about the vaccination program now. Well,
2: we're, you know, over 53,000 vaccines uh, in people's arms, so that's uh, what I keep looking at, is that number continuing to go up, and it is. Uh, We use all the supply that we receive, Uh, you know, we've prioritized the populations uh, as per the provincial regulations, and some really good stuff, of course, is that uh, quite some time ago now, finished long-term care. Uh, homes uh, and offering it to the, both the staff and the residents, you know, started in things like emergency shelters and continue to do the high-risk high, um, uh, high risk, uh, uh, healthcare workers sector as well. So things are moving. Uh, we got thousands of 85-plus uh, booked. I know the process was a bit choppy because we didn't have the online booking tool for the province yet, but we decided that we couldn't wait two weeks, Bill. We wanted to get uh, needles in people's arms, and we did. Uh, Thousands of people, 85-plus, over the last two weeks uh, have been uh, vaccinated as well. And then this morning, uh, things become a whole lot smoother in terms of booking appointments. Uh, You may have to wait, but it's a smooth process to get in uh, using the uh, province's online booking tool. So this is a big piece for for every community moving forward now is uh, this is the tool that will allow people, as they're eligible, uh, to book online and, uh, and take care of, uh, of their booking times as they see fit and I think that's a nice way for us to continue to move. But you mentioned it in your opening, still continues to be a concern for us. Uh, the, the amount of vaccine that we're receiving, we're prepared to do a lot more in terms of uh, shots in arms than the supply that we're receiving at least in the next uh, three to four weeks.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, and I'm glad you brought that up, uh, because that seems to be the major concern here. And I'm I'm hearing this from you. Uh, I'm hearing this from, from the Premier even, uh, yesterday at his media conference, just said, look, give us more, we can inject more people. We're ready, willing, and able. We just don't have the product at this stage. Are you worried about supply chain? Well,
2: we're, we're worried about the delay. I mean, uh, yeah, we, just, we would like more. We've uh, worked with the pro- province and uh, under you know good leadership from the province working with the public health units our public health unit is ready we have large scale sites uh, Hamilton Health Sciences which is uh, working with uh, healthcare workers and really more the staff side of things and then you know the West Fifth St. Joe's location we're opening first Ontario Center next week and Rosedale uh, arena in in early uh, April we're ready plus mobile clinics and pop-up clinics we're going to be at 10,000 a day from a readiness perspective but the reality is, we don't have 10,000 doses a day to deliver. So I think the province is ready, public health units are ready, Hamilton's ready. Uh, we just need that supply to increase. So I know there's nothing we can do about that locally, and I know that even the premier is, uh, you know, trying his uh, his best, and everybody is. But Bill, the the change in terms of the dynamic will come when we have more supply, uh, because uh, Hamilton, like all communities, is ready to go at a much higher level than it is today.
0: I know I've talked uh, with some families that have already had their their loved ones, 80 plus by the way, uh, inoculated, and they tell me, same thing that you just mentioned, there's a delay, it takes a little while to actually get through on the phone, Uh, but once you do that and once you go to the location, I think they went to the West 5th location, uh, they said the staff are fabulous, everything is run very efficiently, so once you get to that level, but it's getting there, I guess it's the major concern for most people now.
2: It, it is and you know now with the online tool again today it's very busy so there's a wait online even to do the booking but really encourage people to go you can get to the provincial tool through the hamilton website hamilton.ca slash vaccine booking and follow the instructions it's very uh, straightforward you'll ask you'll be asked about eligibility so if you're not eligible you'll know right off the hop and if you uh, continue to try and book it, it won't let you and then you can select where you want to go if you want to wait till Um, next week or so. You can book into First Ontario. If you want to go sooner than that, you can book into West Fifth uh, location. And, you know, basically if you have your a photo health card and some basic information uh, you'll be able to book very quickly and, and we're hearing stories this morning of people yeah having a little bit of a wait but getting those bookings in and you automatically get your second dose booking as well so you know when that's coming and that's really the key get those two dates in your calendar and then uh, we're on our way so the online booking tool is great because it's safe uh, long waits on the phone I mean the city of Hamilton simply cannot have thousands of people answering phones we don't have that level of staffing so we have more people answering phones than we have in the last couple of weeks we feel prepared but um, the best thing is to use that online booking tool if you can if you cannot uh, don't have any access to the internet do not have a health card for instance then by all means phone our hotline and uh, folks will be uh, able to assist you there
0: so let's be clear on that the hotline is to get information it's not to book a time only if you uh, can't book
2: it through the online tool. And in fact, you'll be asked fairly early on, did you try uh, booking it through the online tool? So uh, it'll be a lot faster for the individual uh, to, to book using that tool. Uh, there is the ability to book, but really that's trying to be reserved for those who can't book online themselves uh, because uh, it's just easier, simpler. You have control over it. And you'll get the information directly to you. And that's going to be better as you uh, get your first dose and, and second dose. So, yeah, please try online. Uh, see if that will work if it doesn't for some reason we're there to help but there will be uh, waits certainly on today because it's the first day Uh, but it'll get better as the week goes on as more people get online and right now, it's just a reminder for most of the general population, this is for people who are 80 or older uh, in, in 2021, so either turning or already are. And uh, it's not for younger populations yet. And so that uh, that will also keep our, our numbers down if people who are in other categories, uh, don't phone, don't go online. Uh, it's just uh, it's not your turn yet.
0: Has there been any, anecdotally, any any feedback that you, you and your staff have received, Paul, about uh, the efficacy of the vaccine? I know there's a story last week about uh, some adverse uh, side effects in, you know, I think it was over in Europe, uh, and and that caused some hesitancy about people even using the estrogenic vaccine, uh, which I know is available here in Canada. Uh, is there is that a concern for you, and is it a concern for the people that that are already registered?
2: Uh, so, you know, we've certainly not heard a concern, and and as you know, some family physicians in Hamilton were part of the pilot around the AstraZeneca starting this weekend. Uh, so we follow all of the provincial and health guidelines. Uh, Dr. Richardson and her team are poring over that. In terms of adverse effects, generally, uh, that's not been a, a huge issue. And uh, for you know, and as I say, we're over fifty-three thousand vaccines as of uh, the weekend uh, delivered. So. Uh, you know, this is again something that, um, you know, talk with your health provider. If you have questions about the vaccine, go to reputable sources to understand about this vaccine for sure. Uh, but as you can see, people have been coming out in, in droves around this. And, and uh, the, the answer that, that we give is vaccines are safe. Uh, the way they've been developed is not new. And uh, they've just been using the science that's available. This has been done in record time, but that's because of some of the backgrounds. Uh, knowledge that people have had and also the herculean effort and money that's been invested to get us to this point so uh, you know when it's my turn i'm well down the list bill as you know uh, it's not going to be my turn for a little while but when it is my turn uh, i will be signing up right away i'll be rolling up my sleeve and i'll be taking whatever vaccine is available to me at that time Uh, and and so i i would encourage others to do what you need to do to uh, get yourself to a place where this is the way out of this pandemic Bill. No, there there isn't another pathway that will allow us to be here it is about vaccination this immunization strategy and it's nice to be able to be looking forward to that when we get enough people vaccinated
0: talk about long-term strategies here you mentioned about the hamilton sites and first ontario center and of course west fifth uh, but characteristic of their, their mass injection sites everybody's going to go there and line up uh... there are different variations as you know paul in different parts of the province uh, in in toronto and a couple of other municipalities they have already started uh... the injections and and the vaccines in pharmacies uh... and as you mentioned here in hamilton we're part of the pilot project where some uh, doctors are actually starting to do this uh... is is the city ready for that is that part of the plan uh, I, I, have you talked to the pharmaceutical industry uh, and, and the pharmacies and others to say, okay, now it's your turn? Uh, with, as long as the supply is there, I mean, this is all, everything we're talking about here is dependent upon whether or not you're going to get enough vaccines to, to be able to do this. But the long term plan, I would think, is to, to be able to disseminate these vaccines in that fashion, whether it's through a pharmacy, like a flu shot, like a pharmacy or a doctor's office or whatever.
2: Absolutely. You know, we have a system that delivers vaccine very effectively each year. Uh, it's called the flu vaccine, and uh, we're used to that. So at some point, this will tip into, into that. I, I think in these, in this stage where we're trying to get uh, huge numbers of people through, that um, um, you know, there's still a commitment. The province has said, you know, in these in these next few months coming up, and obviously the second doses as well. This is going to be about a mass vaccination and those those sort of localized vaccination clinics, uh, doing a lot of the work. But the province is coordinating with uh, pharmacies. Uh, with uh, primary care family physicians to, to see how we can do this and I you know be my expectation and listening to Dr. Richardson I think she'd agree that at some point this will become uh, something that um, uh, you know when we get into the later months the fall and into the winter again that for those who have uh, you know not got it yet it would likely be through those sources I don't see you'll I don't think you'll see a first Ontario site here for a year, year and a half or something like that. At some point, these need to tip back to more community-based locations. And then there's always the question. I don't know the answer to this, but the question is how regularly might we have to get um, a vaccine in the future? And that's a lot of the research that's coming our way too. So we absolutely have to have a more traditional distribution model. Um, Should this require uh, some follow-up in future years, Bill, it wouldn't be done through these mass vaccination clinics.
0: Are we concerned here at the city about the length of time between the first and second doses? I know, I know that's not your call, uh, but there has been a number of, 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 of people that have raised their concerns about this and simply said that's not what the, the manufacturer said. Uh, and and I, I know some people are getting a little itsy about this now, too.
2: Well, I look at it and say there's science tables that are making these calls. This isn't... Um this isn't done on a whim. And so, uh, you know, we obviously take our direction from uh, the, the province, and I know they're getting good advice from the science table. And as we've seen throughout this pandemic, Bill, the science evolves. And, uh, you know, I know people say, geez, these things keep changing. And I say, well, we keep learning. This is you know very much we're learning as we're doing in this process and that's not always a bad thing and you've seen that with some of the public health measures throughout it think about back to last march and some of the advice we were provided Bill and think about now where we sit in terms of the public health advice particularly on masks so you know things change and I I expect and I trust the science table to say hey if this is the way we can do it and let's remember why we're doing it this way Uh, the clear message is there is good efficacy from a single dose of this vaccine, and this will allow more single doses, first doses, sorry, more first doses to get into the arms of of Hamiltonians, in our case, uh, and Ontarians. So that's the reason that it's happening. If we had all the supply, maybe it'd be a different story, Bill, but we want to make sure people get that coverage, which um, seems to be quite good from even that first dose.
0: Is there a concern here about the number? Well, I'm sure there is a concern about the number of new variants. I know that Hamilton was already singled out as a, an area in the province that where the, the medical officer felt even was saying uh, that there's a concern about some of these. This seems to me, Paul, like a race against the clock. Uh, the, the, the variants that are coming out and, and you know, the, the number of those, at the same time, the vaccination program. Obviously, you'd like to see the vaccination program exceed that uh, so that more and more people can be protected. But we're certainly not there yet. Uh, how concerned are you about those numbers? Those are just just two battling factions.
2: oh very concerned. Uh, you know, if you look at our uh, case numbers, we're really doing two things right now. I mean, we're at a, a weekly rate of new cases for hundred thousand now of seventy three, and when we came out of that stay at home order, it was uh, you know in the high thirties. So we've seen a steady increase in the number of cases. Uh, there are a number of. Um, of cases that are linked to, to variants either suspected and then I then they become confirmed by the lab so very concerning lots of outbreaks that, that still are going on so yeah th- this is not a moment where it's just okay let's get through this vaccine program but everything else is going pretty well uh, there's still a great concern about the general pandemic of coronavirus because uh, we just don't have enough people vaccinated yet so it's uh, you wake up every day with two things on your mind dealing with the crises of the moment in terms of all of these cases and the outbreaks that we see as well as making sure that uh, our vaccine operation is uh, running smoothly so that we can ultimately get to that point where those numbers will come down for good Uh, like we're seeing in long-term care right there they're the test case for how this is working and you're seeing a slowing in terms of deaths in terms of outbreaks in long-term care and the size and scope of those outbreaks and that's wonderful because of course those are the most vulnerable in terms of serious illness and death But it's also a bit of a harbinger of things to come, I think, for the rest of the population. So let's just get on with it. Bill, if I could manufacture Pfizer or Moderna in my basement, I'd be doing it right now so we could
0: get some more doses out there. let me know if that happens would you yeah uh, paul always <laughs> a pleasure
2: from, stay away from the basement vaccines bill that would be my other medication. exactly <laughs> no idea?
0: well and no i know we're out of time but i mean that that's i know a little jocularity here but at the same time there are people that are getting scammed right now that you know being hey you can jump the queue for only a hundred bucks or whatever like that the vaccine is free uh don't get yes. scammed and, and there's a lot of that stuff going on right now so i uh, be wary about that sort of thing and just call the numbers that paul's just talked about and and you'll get your turn eventually Absolutely. paul well, thanks so much for this as always. We'll stay in touch as this rolls out over the next little while. You bet. Thanks, Bill. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton in the vaccine program and the COVID-19, uh, course, protocol that's going on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big news from the federal government. If you're into urban planning and and livable communities, which I like to think most of us are, the infrastructure minister, Catherine McKenna, says that for the first time, Canada is to have a pool of money dedicated specifically to active transportation. McKenna says the National Active Transportation Fund is going to build and upgrade bike paths, pedestrian walkways and bridges and nature trails.
2: This investment will make it easier for more people to get around on foot, by bike, on scooters, wheelchairs, and e-bikes. And heck, even in Ottawa, on skis.
0: So uh, it's an idea whose time has come as far as many people are concerned. I want to have a discussion about this, too, because I think it's got to be a key part of how cities are planned. And even if the cities are older cities that have existing infrastructure, there are ways to retrofit this if the will is there. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Ratan Mitra, who is Associate Director and Professor of Undergraduate Programs with the School of Urban Planning at Ryerson University. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today.
1: I'm very glad to uh, be here.
0: Uh, urban planning, uh, I've got, got to tell you, some years ago it was almost an oxymoron. People just, you know, build it, build it, build it. And, and you know, we had a car culture, it was just build more roads, build more stuff. Are we smarter now about what we're doing, Doctor, when we're planning communities? Mm-hmm.
1: I think we're, we're getting much better. Uh, you know, generally the cities have become much progressive. Cities like Hamilton, uh, they're thinking more progressively about Uh, sustainable and healthy ways to move people. So it's a good time to uh, study urban planning, be an urban planner and talk about this topic.
0: Well, you're right. I mean, I, 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 talked about this extensively, of course, as, for instance, bike paths uh, were being introduced here in the city of Hamilton, uh, and there was a great deal of pushback. I know there was in Toronto, too, because people want to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible in their cars, uh, and and there was always a, a pushback to say, well, look the roads are for cars, uh, and, I, and I'd like to think that we've, we've evolved now to understand that you know, the roads are for everybody that wants to get around.
1: I, I, I can't say that we have evolved completely, but It is a work in progress, and uh, we are in a much better position to think more openly about uh, environmental sustainability and the impact uh, and the positive impact of of cycling and and public transit uh, in that um, more openly than, let's say, one or two decades ago.
0: Yeah, I know the Hamilton situation, of course, uh, you know, there was always this, well, you know, you're cutting off a lane of traffic, and I only saw one or two bikes on there, so it's not worth the time and the energy to do this. Uh, But the the, the attitude seems to be, though, doctor, if you build it, they will come. In other words, cyclists will use it, uh, but you've got to build the infrastructure first.
1: Exactly. You're absolutely right. And, I mean, I would like to argue that uh, there is a significant demand for cycling uh, and, and walking, uh, in urban centers across Canada. And we have seen the number of cyclists growing even where there is no infrastructure. I mean, we all know that compared to the demand, uh, our infrastructure has fallen behind over the past uh, past decades. But it, it, what's encouraging is that we have seen the number of cyclists grow uh, regardless of whether we have cycling infrastructure or not. Now, in this context, building cycling infrastructure will have two benefits. One is that it makes these streets much safer for cyclists as well as non-cyclists. And then, as you said, I mean, if we build infrastructure, more and more people who want to cycle, but they're just afraid to take that first step, they'd be more encouraged to take on by cycling. So it's it it benefits everyone basically
0: and and that fear could well be born out of public safety or lack of public safety i mean you know it wasn't too many years ago that the idea of a bike path uh, or a bike lane was simply just paint a white line on the uh, you know what 18 inches away from the sidewalk and say there there's your bike path uh, and people were scared out of their wits because i mean you know you, the cars and trucks and buses are coming right up behind you uh there's, there's no protection just in case and uh, an awful lot of people said would love to do it but it's just i don't feel safe in, a, in an urban environment doing this uh, and So we've seen cities that have taken the initiative to try to build that infrastructure. And it's not just painting a line. It's putting barriers up. Uh, There's a number of different ways you can do that so that the cyclist feels safe as well.
1: That's absolutely correct. Most of the people who want to bike are afraid to do so just because they don't like the idea of biking uh, on a street with cars that are going at 40, 50 kilometers uh, speed. So... In the places where, where we have built separated bike lanes, I mean, take uh, the Cannon Street example in, in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it was built in 2015, 2016, and we did a survey um, in 2019. It, it, it seems like, uh, you know, about 9 to 10% of the people who live close to that street, they're saying that they're biking more on that street compared to, Compared to only about three or four years ago, so ten percent people, ten percent of all people, which is a large number. So uh, which kind of goes back to the point that you mentioned before that in, in the right places when, you, when we build the facilities that are safer, uh, they have a significant implications in bringing more and pe- more and more people onto the street using their bikes. And that benefits everyone. I mean, we, I mean, we hear complaints about bike lanes, slowdown traffic and whatnot, but all these people who are, you know, uh, now using bikes instead of, let's say, a, a, a private vehicle, that should, uh, theoretically speaking, uh, you know, improve uh, conditions for everyone, both in terms of safety and speed and, and whatnot.
0: And there are innovative ways to do this. I mean, different municipalities, of course, as you know, Doctor, have done it different ways. I know you've studied this extensively. Uh, you know, in Vancouver and I guess even some other cities around here in Ontario, too, I mean, you could put planters up as the barrier uh, and make it look very attractive and actually mm-hmm. improve the streetscape uh, with those sorts of things. Uh, there was a very innovative project here in Hamilton that I know you're aware of that uh, actually got a lot of pushback, and that was to move the uh, the parking on Charlton Street uh, over one lane so that the, the lane beside the curb was going to be the bike lane and then there was parking and people were just outraged by this i mm-hmm. said this is this is ridiculous i mean we i heard mm-hmm. people every day doctor called said how can you do this you're slowing traffic down it just it looks dumb uh you get choose to it. Uh, I mean, it and it's something that's going on in other cities too it's just a matter of uh, let's let's ha- see how we can accommodate both situations here
1: yes and i mean it, it, i think it's less about necessarily um inconvenience than it's more about the idea of uh, cars idea of roads for roads being built for cars right so and it's not necessarily an issue as you mentioned just for Hamilton or for Toronto or for Vancouver I mean generally in North American cities whenever there is an a transportation infrastructure that's being built that compromises space for automobiles. Uh, It's been a big... There's always been a big pushback, which is why it's incredibly difficult to implement active transportation uh, infrastructure using municipal funds within our current, particularly Ontario's, uh, political uh, environment which is why this fund by the federal government is is uh, very exciting as 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 someone who has studied this topic for a while I'm I'm really encouraged by uh, by this announcement
0: there's another element to this too and I guess this ties right into the the idea about the bike paths and uh and nature trails i mean as you know here in hamilton we're blessed with so many different conservation authorities and fabulous nature trails uh but oftentimes uh those paths are broken up by well roads highways in some cases Mm -hmm. uh, and building pedestrian walkways or, or bike walkways over top of those things uh we've got a few examples of that in hamilton i know they're trying to do this in ottawa and a couple of other cities as well it's 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 really i guess enhancing that participation and and getting out of the car and going for a walk or going for a bike ride as opposed and say well that's just as far as i can go because there's a barrier here there doesn't have to be a barrier there and i understand from what minister mckenna was saying uh, that's one of the, uh, the the stated goals here is to try to in, in, and, and lengthen those things and, cr- and and eliminate those barriers or cross over those barriers
1: yes you're absolutely right i mean and and, and you know one of the key reasons why uh, in in Cities across North America. Many people do not bike or walk. Is is what you've just said. I mean, there's there's a lack of uninterrupted um, uh, facilities for pedestrians and cyclists. I mean, uh, we we did a study um, a, a few years back where we looked at um, you know the possibility of bicycling to GO Transit stations, for example, and the majority of the people. Uh, who we surveyed, uh, and who lived quite close to the stations, uh, would not bike because they had to cross like major streets and highways and whatnot, uh, without any uh, uh, bicycling infrastructure, which became like a uh, major barrier for them to even start thinking about uh, biking. So yes, uh, uninterrupted infrastructure is a key. And like I said, there's, there's a lot of people in uh, in 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 our societies, particularly in urban centers, who want to bike, but they they're just not confident that we have the right infrastructure for for them to safely do so. Uh, so, uh, as we continue to build uh, safer uh, infrastructure, uh, I think. That we will see a lot of people in the coming years to take up take up biking, and, biking and walking, uh, and which we all know is a is a more sustainable way to move around. And in the context of uh, when we would be coming out of a major pandemic, it would be a healthier healthier way to travel travel as well. I mean, it would you know uh, give us an opportunity to do some physical exercise. It it Ensure that we are keeping uh, physically distanced. So it's it's a win-win.
0: Are we getting smarter about planning? I mean, it can be challenging to to retrofit fit some of the stuff we're talking about into older urban centers, uh, downtowns that were built uh, sometimes 100 or more than 100 years ago. I I understand that. Uh, Not insurmountable, but it is challenging. But with new areas that are being developed right now, uh, are are municipalities insisting upon these sorts of infrastructure as part of that new municipality to make sure there are walking paths and bike paths?
1: I think we're seeing more uh more uh bike paths and and uh pedestrian walkways in new suburbs suburbs compared to what we would see a decade ago you know many of the cities including hamilton uh waterloo region for example they have adopted what's called a complete streets policy which is that uh, when they are building new streets uh they would consider every possible uh, modes of transportation on those streets. So we are seeing more and more... um, uh, It's becoming more and more common when uh, bike facilities and pedestrian facilities are, uh, you know, being built as, as the municipalities are building more suburban roads. So that's very encouraging. But then again, I mean, one of the key problems and you have mentioned this before, is that these developments are often happening in a fragmented way. So you see a bike path for 750 meters, and then it doesn't connect to anything. So you you have that piece of infrastructure, which is disjointed from, uh, from anything else. You can't really go from point A to point B and be on a bike infrastructure from beginning to end. So this is a key problem that, uh, as municipalities, uh, we'd have to try to solve. And I, I mean, to be honest, the cities are trying their best, but these things take time and money and hopefully over time, uh, things will, will improve.
0: Well, and again, where, the, where there's a will, there's a way. And, and I yes. point, and I, think I mentioned this when we were having this discussion a year or two ago, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of uh, what goes, in the town of Collingwood, of course, uh, up uh, not too f- not far north of Toronto there, uh, do an um, incredible job. Uh, they've got bike paths all over the city, walking paths down by the waterfront, down by the bay there, uh, and they've tied it into the rail trail, which a lot of communities have used, of course. They've taken the tracks up, and that becomes a bike path. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can actually, you can travel from Collingwood all the way up to uh, to to uh, so many other different communities because it's all tied together. Uh, it, it's it's innovative and it's it's an incredible way for people to go out and get some exercise and take advantage of, of the natural environment that's there, too. And, and as they can do it, uh, other cities can adopt that sort of thing, too, with whatever infrastructure they've got and, and make sure, as you say, you tie it into existing infrastructure. You know, we, we have rail trails here in Hamilton as well, uh, old railroad tracks that have been converted into bike paths and, and walking paths for people. Uh, why not tie some of these things that we're putting together here now into those so that, as you say, the, the, it's not a dead end and there's, the, there's a, an opportunity for people to go long distances and, and, and actually make it a, an excursion.
1: You're absolutely right. And it's uh, interesting that you mentioned Collingwood because in the rural context, there's a real economic uh, benefit to it. And, I, and, and I'm sure uh, uh, you were very much aware that you know, Bicycle-based tourism is becoming a big thing in rural parts of Ontario. So many of the rural municipalities, calling out Peterborough and, and, and similar municipalities, they're be, being in, in, increasingly interested in building uh, recreational bicycling infrastructure because it has become, over the past decade, a, a major tourist uh, tourist attraction. So there is a major economic aspect to it as well.
0: Well, there's another element to this, and you well know this, of course, at Ryerson right downtown Toronto, uh, is there's a real concern right now about the gravitation away from urban centers. A lot of people are just moving out of, of larger cities and moving to places like Peterborough and Collingwood, uh, and one of the attractions is is this kind of cycling infrastructure and other things. In other words, they can they can have the recreational facilities and a less expensive home and a nice community that doesn't have the same concerns and, and, and challenges that a larger city would have. Uh, you know that it's it's a, it's a way for cities to simply say, wait a second, we can accommodate you with that stuff here too, if as long as you make the commitment to it. And it in the long run could actually be very beneficial to communities to have people at least stay where they are now, instead of simply saying, look, you're not offering what I want, so I'm out of here. <laughs> that's that's very true. It's a a fascinating discussion and a fascinating debate and uh, only going to get, I guess, a a little more intense as we find now that the federal government is committing money toward this. Uh, And uh, as you say, I think we're starting to see a a major change in attitude here uh, by governments at all three levels right now, municipal, federal, and provincial, uh, to accommodate this kind of infrastructure. Uh, Lots more to come on this, I would think, Doctor, in the days and weeks to come. Thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ratim Mitra from uh, Ryerson University School of Urban Planning. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's finance minister says the province will deliver its 21-22 budget on March the 24th, a little more than a week from now. Peter Bethlenfalvy says the spending plan will be the province's second of the pandemic, and it's intended to help with Ontario's economic recovery. Our government's second pandemic budget will focus on protecting people's health and We will have a plan, we'll continue to have a plan,
3: and we'll follow up in every respect to a plan to defeat
2: COVID-19.
0: So what's it going to look like? Uh, What kind of an impact is it going to have? Well, to answer some of those questions and to give us some ideas, uh, please do welcome back to the program Stan Cho. Stan is the MPP for Willowdale, also the Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Finance, who we just heard from. Uh, Stan, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Great to be back. Thanks.
3: Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: To suggest that there are going to be some major challenges here, I guess, is a massive understatement. Uh, we're talking about deficits here. We're talking about the amount of government spending. Uh, but at the same time, with an eye towards uh, maybe the, right at the end of the tunnel that we've been talking about for the last year or so, how do you, how do you put all those things together and try to come up with a financial plan?
3: Yeah, thanks, Bill. And, and I think uh, you hit it on the head of the nail. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we're not through this difficult time yet. So the time for spending and investing in, in you know health and protection measures for, for Ontarians is That's very much the priority of this budget. But it is crucial to start looking around the corner uh, at the economic recovery piece. We uh, mentioned last time I was on your show that this isn't going to be Ontario versus Quebec or Pennsylvania. This is going to be Ontario versus the world. And so the light, uh, although we can see it at the end of the tunnel, we have to be prepared for what is outside uh, when we get there. And that means competition against the world for laying that foundation now for success for our small businesses, for our manufacturing, for our parents. And and that's going to be the focus of this budget. (sighs)
0: Yeah. <sighs> It's interesting, as you look at some of the numbers, and I know you guys have been going over these for the uh, last couple of weeks too, Stan. Uh, we, we know that this has had a, a huge negative impact on the economy with the, the, the pandemic. Uh, the lockdowns have been problematic, necessary probably, but problematic nonetheless. Uh, that's another debate that we don't need to have today. But uh, when you look at this and then you look at some of the economic numbers, and it, it they really are telling two different stories. We, we hear about job losses and people in very dire circumstances. Uh, and then there's uh, the stories about economic recovery about new jobs that are being created uh, about some companies that are actually expanding uh, it's 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 really contrasting uh, when you look at, at at the impact that this has had on on various uh, elements of, of the society and very very various elements of, of the community and of the economy right now uh, how do you try to serve both of those masters that's a great question, Bill,
3: and it's something that we're talking about uh, the entire pandemic uh, in our government to make sure that we are prepared for for this sort of new reality. And the fact that even the private sector out there has a lot of uh, uncertainty when it comes to the economic recovery piece. You know, there are those that believe that the path to uh, financial stability and economic uh, sort of success is, is austerity measures. Uh, there are those that believe that increased taxation is the way to go but our government believes in a in a third approach a different approach and that is through what we were doing uh before covid-19 and that was creating the conditions for economic success i mean we saw record job creation I and mean, ontario was very much a uh, leader of the pack uh, not just in the country but up there in north america for job creation and and that is that is what we believe will lead to our success to increase provincial revenues once again is to create the conditions for our job creators To succeed, and so you know that is the focus of of one of the focuses of our budget coming up is to create those conditions to lay the groundwork for that that success. Because, uh, as I said, our government believes that that is the path to not just uh, fiscal uh, sustainability in, in our programs and services, but overall for the people of this province to put food on their tables
0: when you look at the job losses and you look at the number of uh, businesses that has yet to open their doors or at least open them on a limited basis uh, it's it's challenging to say the least Uh, but when you're in a situation like that and where all of a sudden we get to that light at the end of the tunnel and uh, okay we can do this now okay we're going to open up uh, we're going to let people go shopping Uh, we're not limiting the number of people that go into the stores like it was back in the day Uh, how much how much of that kind of activity stan is going to in and of itself uh raise us out of the doldrums that we're in now the economic doldrums in other words it's almost like a self-recovery uh you know we're finally allowed to go back to 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 the winter stores and to here and to the bay and to the malls and we're going to spend our money because we've got more money a lot of us do anyway than we did a year ago uh is is, do you factor that in as part of the economic recovery because uh every economist i've talked to says that's that's surely to happen
3: yeah, Bill, and I, I look forward to that too. Gee, it feels like uh, the last time I went to a Leaf game was a decade ago, and got to have a, a beer at the bar with my friends. I mean, I think we all miss that, and I think there is a, 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 a real appetite for us to return to that normal. Um, but we have to make sure that we do that in the right way. And of course, vaccines are a big part of that. But we also have to remember the economy is not going to flip a switch uh, for everyone. And, and while many will will sort of uh, transition very nicely back into normal life. We have to remember this pandemic has hit women, uh, minorities, young people, especially hard. So uh, you know, even though we're not there yet and we have to continue to, to sort of follow our, our health advice, we also have to understand in government that we're going to have to lay additional pieces, uh, those foundations for success because not everyone was hurt by COVID-19 uh, equally. And so while we're going to make sure that job creators uh, have the conditions to succeed, we're also going to focus on, on, uh, on how we help women, how we help, uh, you know, our, our, our racialized communities, our Indigenous, and, and make sure that, you know, we understand that people didn't hurt equally throughout this pandemic. And so this budget is going to be a balanced uh, document of our priorities to help all Ontarians recover from this thing.
0: So can you target those specific groups with uh, with certain aid programs?
3: Yeah, there, there's going to be programs specific to certain groups. There's going to be programs specific uh, to, to, uh, to women in our economy that help yeah, with childcare and things like that, but really, it's going to be a balanced approach. And as I said, Bill, it's got the focus still has to be the health and safety. Uh, we're not through this, uh, unfortunately, pandemic yet. But you know, with that light at the end of the tunnel, it, it, you've got to be positioned on both feet, like a, a boxer. Is, is, as, a, as the minister likes to say, you've got to have the balance on the left foot for your health and, and safety protection, but you've got to be balanced on your right foot to be able to adapt to, to when the vaccination is upon us, and it's time to, to, to get the economy back in full swing.
0: We should put this in perspective, uh, for our, the sake of our listeners anyway, when we talk about uh between May and January, Ontario employment actually rose by seven hundred twenty nine thousand one hundred net jobs, which sounds like good news, and it is. Uh, but it's still well below uh, where it should be. It's five point four percent, or about four hundred five thousand jobs uh, below pre pandemic levels. So, in other words, we took a real hit, and we seem to be climbing out of the hole, but we got a long way to go.
3: We do have a long way to go, and that's why it's crucial to make sure that we're continuing our our, our positioning for the future. And what do I mean by that? I mean. I mean things like cutting uh property tax for small business owners. You know, we 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 did that last budget, 30% up to 30% savings in property tax alone for the, for small businesses throughout our province and that's a permanent measure. Um you know, because we know that job creation is going to come at uh, the the, the re- at, well really the job creators are going to create that. And we need to make sure that they have the conditions for success. That's not the only measure we've introduced that's permanent. We eliminated the tax on jobs, the EHT, for the smallest of small businesses. So, you know, Hamilton businesses with payroll up to a million dollars a year are no longer going to pay that tax. That's a savings of thousands of dollars. We've brought down hydro fees. Uh, we're laying a series of, of support measures to help with additional fixed costs, whether that be utilities. Um, these are the types of measures, Bill, that we need to say, you know, we, we get it. I mean, I come from the small business world. Uh, people don't care there's one taxpayer out there and a bill is a bill whether that's your hydro bill your property tax bill your eht and that's money that you can be putting towards creating additional jobs Uh, and that's exactly what we're focused on is making sure the burden on job creators is reduced we're confident that the jobs are going to come back uh, to ontario and we're going to position our manufacturing and our mom-and-pop shops uh, to be in the position to take on the world and win
0: uh, when governments get it right, I mean, I, I've been critical, I think you and I talked last time you were with us about uh, one of the programs you guys offered, which was some of the subsidy programs and loan programs, and I said, in the short term, that, that, that's great, uh, but all it's really doing is increasing the debt for small business, and as a small business person, you'd know exactly what I was talking about, uh, and, and to your credit, uh, your government did make a correction there, and you, you've turned that program into a grants program now. Uh, with the uh, 1.4 billion dollars was allowed for small businesses and i know an awful lot of people in this area uh... took up that program as well it's it's that's the sort of relief and i I know it may run contrary to to what a lot of economists uh... are thinking about and those who consider themselves to be quote unquote fiscally responsible but uh... programs like that 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 are out of the norm may be necessary for the short term to try to get people back on their feet I could agree with you
3: more, Bill. I mean, I'm a, I consider myself a fiscally responsible guy. I, you know, I, I learned the lesson of saving for a rainy day in my parents' little convenience store in Rexdale when I was nine years old because uh, well, my store was busy. I asked for a toy. And my parents said no, that now's the time to save. And I'm glad that our government did that, uh, that, you know, save for a rainy day in our first two and a half years. That's that's why we're able to spend on the programs and services we need. And that small business grant program is is just one example of that. You know, and I'm glad to hear that small businesses have, have, have found this helpful to weather the storm that is COVID-19. And, and you know, we, we we actually created that program. Uh, in consultation with the small business community who said, look, you know, the loan programs are great, but, you know, I need a grant right now to, to get through this thing. It's a grant of up to $20,000, and whether that goes to, to PPE, whether that goes to keeping payroll, you know, they, I, I know that uh, from a small business background, uh, you know, my, my dad had to second mortgage his house to keep the doors open. So anything and everything helps at this time. Now is still the time to spend. We are still in the middle of this, this pandemic, but as I said, there will be a time when We are through this where record job creation is going to lead us back to that path of sustainability and uh, prosperity
0: for all of us stan when we get to that point where things start to reopen again and it's slowly but surely happening and hopefully that trend continues of course uh not all the doors are going to reopen we know that to be a fact and that's that's one of the tragedies of of the pandemic uh and those people aren't going to be employed Uh, what do you do for those people the ones that are left behind
3: it's such an important question, Bill, because you're right. I mean, the, the sad reality is there will be those, uh, you know, job creators who won't be able to weather this storm. And now we, we've done our best to, to keep those numbers at a minimum. Uh, but, you know, when, when, when we're out of this thing and through the tunnel and, and life is back to normal, uh, we've provided a series of measures to make sure that those who are out of work are able to retool, and so we've made huge investments into the skilled trades. Our Minister of Education has allowed for the de-streaming uh, in schools, which means more people can get into the trades. Uh, we've also allowed for micro-credentialing, uh, which is uh, you know poor 180 million dollars, and to be able to allow people to retool for the jobs that are out there. And so, if you've lost your your job at the Uh, because you were in tourism which was hit very hard for example you could get a micro credential at your local school your community college to be able to operate a piece of machinery Um, we're building a new new economy here we're reskilling we're retraining we're looking towards the jobs of the future uh, and and that is coming in conjunction and consultation with the private sector who we know is going to uh, be pivotal in in leading us to that new reality so bill very short answer is we know things are going to change but we're listening to the experts to make that our government is in step, uh, able to change and adapt and evolve uh, as necessary at the pace of of, of, of the real world.
0: Well, our listeners will remember, it was just a week or so ago, actually, Stan, we just did a show with Mohawk College uh, about the, the skilled trades and the the partnership programs that they developed, with the help, by the way, of the provincial government and federal government, funding from both sources uh, to try to do this, uh, because you, there are people that are going to have to find a, a new skill, a new trade, and or to enhance the ones that they've got to try to find uh, different employment like that. And the programs that the community colleges have developed uh, have been instrumental in, in actually doing that, because you get a hands-on approach with uh, whatever that trade might be, and it, which is really kind of a pathway right into another job. You're,
3: you're absolutely right, Bill. And, and now it's not just Mohawk. I, I, before the pandemic or, or when numbers were low, I was touring uh, pre-budget for the last budget. I was in, you know, same thing going on at Fleming. Uh, same thing outside of Canada. same thing outside in, in North Bay. There's there's also all sorts of great things happening because I think colleges and businesses understand that, uh, you know, this, the, the, we, we have to focus on jobs all across Ontario because it's not just the GTA. They're, they're, they're out there. There is a new reality of economy. And, and, you know, part of that is also investing in broadband infrastructure because many of these businesses and Toronto has had sort of an exodus uh, throughout this pandemic. Uh, you know, broadband is crucial to every business out there, even at, whether that's agriculture, whether that's uh, tourism, uh, culture. And so we need to invest into the broadband infrastructure as well as into retooling uh, individuals out there for the jobs. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad to hear that there's great things happening at Mohawk. It's happening across our province. And this is why I'm very optimistic, Bill. It's, you know, Ontarians have some of the smartest people on the planet and, 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 and some of the most creative and hardest working. And I am confident that we are going to be a real powerhouse when it comes to economic development, not just in Canada, but in North America. And so our government just needs to make sure we create the conditions for the, the greatest people on the planet to succeed and get out of their way.
0: To that point, though, uh, I mean, the numbers don't lie here. The government allocated about $87 million less on capital funding for colleges and universities and $475 million less for post-secondary operating grants and student aid, uh, which is somewhat problematic. I mean, if they have less money, they can offer less services. Uh, is the government going to reassess that situation?
3: Uh, so uh, this, this pandemic has hit every, whether that's students, it's small businesses, it's hit us all hard. And so there's been additional supports, whether that was from federal governments, uh, from our government, and so... You know, you'll see traditional funding buckets uh, sort of uh, ebb and flow, uh, but that's because there's been uh, unprecedented collaboration between all levels of government. And so, you know, we take social services, for example. You'll see an ebb and flow in some of the funding traditional buckets because the CERB program had higher uptake, and so more people were going to that. And so you'll see a bit of a reduction in the bucket for social services here in Ontario. But, you know, that's very much just the product of this crazy time that we're all living through and so we we understand that, that the importance of making uh uh, investments into post-secondary education. That's why we've frozen tuition fees against. Uh, we're moving towards more KPIs, performance-based uh, funding uh, incentives for post-secondary educations, uh institutions. And, and so we need to see where the pieces land on this uh, before we, we, we understand exactly what the fiscal picture is going to look like. The, the point is, though, as the Premier has said, uh, whatever it takes to make sure that we get through this thing, uh, students, seniors, all of us, he's uh, going to make sure that the funding is there.
0: Stan, we're going to have to leave it there for now. We're tight on time. I'm sure we'll pick this conversation up again uh, a day or two after the budget is finally released and we see some of the hard and fast numbers. Thanks, as always, for the time today. Greatly appreciated. Bill, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Stan Show of course, MPP for Willowdale and, of course, parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Finance. Budget coming down on March the 24th. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.